Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the home visit season is starting. Some of you perhaps already received your annual home visit from the elders. Last week, even though I didn't say it in so many words, I didn't mention it at the time, but the, the text on contentment was the exposition of the home visit theme for this year, which deals with contentment, with that feeling of enoughness in Christ. And so, as we begin a, another season of home visits with the elders coming to our homes and visiting with our families, with us, it's a good time to stop and, and reflect why. Who are these men? What are they doing? Why are they coming to visit us? What, why does God give elders to the church? Well, part of the answer the scripture gives is in our text. Now, Peter is writing this letter to a church that's afflicted a church that's suffering because of the name of Jesus. And you saw that in chapter 4. If you look at verses 12 and 13, he says, Don't be surprised. There's this fiery trial coming on you to test you. Don't think that's strange, but look at verse 13. Rejoice, because you get to share in Christ's sufferings and rejoice and be glad that you also get to share when his glory is revealed. And then look at the way that the apostle instructs the church on a godly reaction to suffering. Look at verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. That's not necessarily the first thing we would think of, right? If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Very counterintuitive what the apostle instructs us about how to respond to suffering and affliction and persecution. And what he's pointing to here is the way of the cross. It's the message of the scriptures. It's the message of the gospel that through suffering, through humiliation, through persecution, we come to glory. And if you read this, this, this epistle, you'll notice that two words keep coming back in this little letter of Peter. One of them is the word suffer or suffering, and the other word is glory. There's lots of references to suffering, lots of references to glory, because in the economy of the kingdom of God and in the way things work in the real world that has fallen and that can only be redeemed in and through Christ, suffering and glory are part of our story until the final chapter begins, the chapter which never ends, the renewal of all things, the consummation of all things. So that's the context that Peter's using here and in which he's writing this letter, and, and it's the context in which he mentions the elders here in our, in our text of chapter 5. And so he tells us that God gives us elders to shepherd us through suffering towards eternal glory. There are other reasons why God gives elders, and the scriptures speak about them as well. If you turn to Acts chapter 20 quickly in your Bible, that's on page 729, Acts 20 verse 28. It's a very well-known text. Um, the apostle says, apostle Paul speaking here, Acts 20, 28, pay attention, careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to, to care for the church of God, 
which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So he's speaking about pastoring, about shepherding. He's speaking about the flock in the context of fierce wolves from outside and people arising from inside the church to teach what is not right, to teach things which hurt and which mislead the people of God. So that's, in Acts chapter 20, the context of false teaching. But here in our text, he's speaking about the, the God giving us elders in the context of suffering. It's a very different context. Suffering, why? Suffering because we are pilgrims. Suffering because we don't belong in this world the way it is. Suffering for the name. Of Jesus. And so to help us get through that suffering, God gives us elders to shepherd us, to pastor us. Now, see what Peter does at the beginning of our text. Did you notice how he speaks about himself? He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. He's not pulling rank here. He's not saying, well, I'm the great apostle and I'm going to speak from my apostolic throne here and tell you guys what to do and how to act. He, he brings himself down. He says, listen, I'm, I'm just, just another elder along with you guys. I'm a fellow elder. We learn from this and from other parts of scriptures that the office of elders connected to the office of apostle. If you take an apostle you take away all the special circumstances and the special uh, temporary spiritual gifts that they were given, if you take those away, then you're left with an elder. What did the apostles have? Well, they were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Obviously, we can't have elders nowadays that were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. They would be very old, so we can't have that. They had temporary special gifts of the Holy Spirit. They could heal people. Uh, they could uh, speak in tongues. And those gifts have now ceased since the closing of the canon. And they could speak the very words of God. They could give revelatory prophecy spoken and written. They had direct inspiration by the Holy Spirit. But if you take those things away, then you're left with an elder. They also had authority and leadership to oversee the church and to guide the church in the word of God. And that's what the elders still do today. The eldership is an apostolic office, in a sense. The, the elders don't govern the church by an unwritten set of rules that, uh, that you've got to act a certain way or think a certain way. The elders don't govern the church by what they think and what they would like to see, but the elders govern and pastor the church with the apostolic word. And when the elders come to our house, then they come, like the apostles, as men ordained by the Spirit of God, men called by God to be ambassadors of Christ, they come in an office, they represent the Lord Jesus himself so that when the elders come into your house, the Lord Jesus is visiting with your family through his representatives. It's a very serious and solemn office. And when they instruct us, when they exhort us, when they encourage us, when they point out the way to us, it's not their opinions. We don't want to hear their opinions. But it's the word of God. That's what we look for from 
the elders, and that's what they bring when they're faithful to their office. They testify to the way of the cross. They testify, like Peter says, I'm a a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I'm a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. That's what the elders do. They witness to the sufferings of Christ. So what do you need to be a fellow elder of Peter? Well, you need to know the way of the cross, not just in your head intellectually. You need to know what it is to live, to experience the way of the cross. You need to know what it is to give up everything you are, everything you have, deny yourself, take up your cross, and and follow the Lord Jesus no matter how much it hurts, no matter what it costs. You need to be able to give testimony about that, to be able to witness to the sufferings of Christ. You need to know where our sufferings come from because we're pilgrims. And you need to know where our painful pilgrimage is going to the glory that is revealed. This is very, very important, this dynamic of the gospel, which Peter brings out repeatedly in this letter. Nowadays, there's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of stuff out there in the the broader Christian world uh, I saw that a lot in South America too, especially. They, they, there's a lot of stuff out there which just says if you believe in Jesus, then your life's going to get real good. You're not going to get sick anymore. You're not going to be unemployed. You're going to be rich. You're going to be healthy. You're going to be wealthy. That's not the gospel. That's not what the Apostle Peter is teaching either. Let's just quickly skim through the letter and just see two or three spots where he points out this dynamic. Chapter 1, verse 11 Chapter 111, that's page 798. He speaks about the prophets prophesying the Old Testament, inquiring what personal time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. There's the way of the cross. Suffering to glory. Turn to chapter 3, verse 18. That's on page 799. 318. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So that movement from suffering to glory, from death to life, that's the dynamic of the gospel. And then 4.13, we've already looked at 4.13 a little, a few moments ago, speaking about rejoicing as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed, suffering to glory. That's the dynamic of the gospel. That's the dynamic of this letter. And an elder is someone that knows all about that. An elder knows and experiences the way of the cross. An elder is a man whose words and whose life testify to the sufferings of Christ. The elders were, the, the apostles were eyewitnesses They testify to what they saw. The elders are ear witnesses. They testify to what they hear. They hear the word of God. They embrace the word of God. They know the word of God. They live the word of God. And they know that it's real. That that is the way. They know how to tell people about the sufferings of Christ. They know how to, how to live in the power of Christ's suffering. An elder knows hope in affliction, joy in suffering, life in the midst of death. And because they know, 
they are able to do their job. They're able to comfort us. They're able to shepherd us. They're able to guide us through suffering to glory. You remember what Christ said to the Lord Jesus, uh, sorry, what the Lord Jesus Christ said to, to Peter after his resurrection. Three times he asked Peter, do you love me? And then, and then he would tell him, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. That was the task that Christ gave to, to Peter as a leader amongst the apostles and then to the apostles and, and to the generations of church leaders which follow them, the elders. The elders inherit this task from Peter. Peter is passing on the torch here in our, in our text. He's saying, this is what I was told to do. I was told to take care of the flock. You have to participate in that. I'm not going to be around forever. Generation after generation of elders has to take that torch and pass it on to care, to tend, to feed, to shepherd the flock that Jesus loved so much that he gave his own life for it. So as we walk along this pilgrim path of suffering, God gives us elders to to shepherd us, to pastor us, to feed us, to guide us. That's the context of our text. But now let's look at the conduct of the elders in this office as we go to verse 2. How should the elders do what they're called to do? Well, says Peter, you've got you to shepherd the flock. The, 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 the verb there is to pastor. Pastor the flock. The word pastor means shepherd. So the elders, biblically speaking, are pastors. I'm not quite sure why we just call the preacher pastor. It's not exactly biblical to do that. Our elders, together with our preacher, are our pastors. And in a certain sense, the deacons have their own pastoral ministry as well. They're called to pastor the flock in a certain way, exercising oversight. And the Greek word there is, uh, has to do with the word episcopal. You know, the Episcopal Church, the Church of Bishops. Uh, it's the word connected to, to being a bishop, to being an overseer, to have responsibility for, to exercise oversight. Now, how should they do it? Well, Peter tells us. He says, you've you got to do that not under compulsion, but willingly. God doesn't want men leading his beloved church, the church he loves as the apple of his eye, the church for whom Jesus gave his own blood. He doesn't want men that are in leadership that are just kind of going through the motions and doing it because they have to. Not under compulsion. The Bible speaks of aspiring to the office. And young men in the church, men who have not served in the offices, may you pray that the Lord would put in your heart a desire to serve the church also in one of the offices. When the church is healthy, when all the men are living godly lives, doesn't matter what kind of person they are, they've all got their gifts and talents to contribute to pastoral ministry in one of the offices. And it should be so that when the elders come up and the deacons come up with a list of the people that are eligible for office, it should be so that every name of every man can stand on that list. That's the way it should be. That's something to aspire to as a congregation. 
So the Bible doesn't have the idea of, of being forced to do something, but aspiring to this office. What does the form say? We just, uh, the, every time we, we read the form for ordination, then we see the office various saying before God, I feel in my heart that God himself is calling me through the congregation. I feel in my heart that God is calling me. So I'm not just doing because I have to. I'm doing it because I'm responding willingly to God's call. And the word willingly here means, means deliberately, intentionally, as God would have you. That's the kind of leadership that God wants for his church. Jesus loves his church. Jesus bought his church with his own blood. Jesus suffered the agonies of hell for his church. And Jesus is very particular about the kind of men that he wants leading and serving his church in the offices. And brothers and sisters, this is not easy. This is a high calling. To serve in the offices requires a massive commitment of time and energy and sacrificial love. There are meetings and then more meetings and visits and more visits. There's more and more nights away from the family, from wife and children. There's the weight of responsibility. There's prayer. And there's that pain when, when sheep have to be disciplined and, and that, that grappling with how to do it and when to do it and, and when to proceed and when to wait. It's a heavy, heavy burden that your office bearers carry as they serve you in the love of Christ. And as we hear this as congregation, we need to stop and think about what we're doing. How do we help them in their office? How do we treat those who serve as pastors of the church? Do we support them with our words, with our prayers? Do we respond to their pastoral care? Do we praise God for these men and for their sacrifice and for the sacrifice their, their wives and their children are making for the good of the congregation? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. It's on page 794. And see what the apostle says here, Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The Bible presses upon us how heavy the burden is of office. At the great and final day, the day of judgment, God will call the office bearers to account for each of his beloved sheep for how they served those sheep faithfully or not. That's a massive responsibility. And the apostle says, listen, congregation, help these men that they can do that with joy, not with groaning. It's not going to help you if the elders are stressed out and, and frustrated and, and sad because they're not getting any response to their pastoral care. Don't do that. Help them along in their work. They need your support and your prayers. And so, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. That word eagerly means willingly again, with zeal. You put everything into it that you can. 
And not for, that's contrasted with, with, with seeking shameful gain. So the apostle saying, don't do it sordidly or filthy lucre for some kind of filthy worldly reward for yourself, but do it willingly and with zeal. You're giving, you're not taking. That's the point here. The office is one of giving and not taking. Now, in the history of the church, the offices have often been abused to enrich men. And in, in the, the church before the Reformation, that got to a, a terrible, terrible state where so-called pastors of the church were living in incredible wealth while the poor were suffering greatly and being exploited. That's not so easy today, thankfully, because of, of some of the reforms that were made in the church in the 16th century. But we still need to watch out for the attitude behind that. We need to watch out for that what's in it for me attitude. Maybe, maybe it's hard to get rich being an elder. I think it would be very difficult. But maybe, maybe we can serve thinking, you know, what's in it for me? Do I get more reputation? Do I get the limelight? Do I get power to make rules and tell the church this is the way things have to be? Get my opinion implemented? The decisions? Do I seek influence and importance? What the apostle's telling us here is is that we ought to have the attitude of, it's not about me. It's not what's in it for me. It's about Christ. It's about the church of Christ. It's not what can I get out of this, but it's what can I give? What can I contribute as a living member of the body? How can I empty myself and serve and fill others? Brothers and sisters, I sit the consistory table, I sit at the council table, I look around these men, and often I wonder in my mind, why are they doing this? Why are they do- what do they get out of it? A lot of grief, a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress, a lot of weighing upon their hearts, a lot of time and energy that they give, but what do they get? If this heavy responsibility, there's this heavy burden, they have to give account to the Lord of the church. And these brothers, they give. They're not there to take. They give. They give time. They give love. They give service. That's true of the elders currently serving, and that's true of the men who have served for many years at different times this congregation. We praise God for that giving and serving spirit that the Holy Spirit has worked in these men. So not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And then not domineering. Not domineering. Paul recognizes that it's always a great temptation for leaders in any sphere of life to abuse authority. We see it all over the place. We see it in civil society. We see it in work, in organizations, in management. We see it even in the church. We see it in families where people can kind of get carried away with themselves and start doubling down on I am in charge here in my way or the highway. Domineering is always so attractive because it's in, it's in sync with our fallen human nature. Uh, deep calls to deep and so that domineering kind of 
abusive use of authority just really, really echoes the depth of our fallen nature, our old nature. And it's also very attractive because it's so efficient. It's just so easy, right? If just everybody would just listen to me, that's what we think, right? Just do what I think, I've got it all figured out, just listen. Just do what I say, do what I want. That's the kind of spirit behind domineering abuse of authority, whether it's in the church, in the family, or in any other sphere of life. But the Lord Jesus confronts our old nature. The Lord Jesus confronts those wicked, fallen tendencies in all of us. And the Lord Jesus tells us, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. The Lord Jesus tells his disciples as they're walking along in the Gospels, he says, listen, that's the way the Gentiles do things. They run things, they tell people what to do, they impose their will. But that's not the way that leadership works in the kingdom of God. The style of leadership in the kingdom of God is to give, not to take. To serve, not to impose. You know, sometimes in war, when there's an attack and the men, the soldiers have to be led forward, there are two types of officer. The one officer has got it all figured out and stays safely in shelter as he commands all the different troops to get out there and do the right thing and, and go forward and attack the enemy. Whereas the other type of officer, instead of saying go, he runs ahead and says, come on, and gives the example, which type of officer do you think is followed more joyfully and more confidently by the troops? Well, it's that second type of officer that the Lord wants for his, his church. The elders reflect the character of the supreme shepherd. They are called to pastor, they are called to lead, They're called to show the way. What does the Lord Jesus say in the Gospels? My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Jesus isn't behind us, hitting us and and, and, and punishing us with the law and keeping us in line. Jesus is ahead of us, showing us the way and gently calling us to follow him. So elders, the congregation needs to hear and see the Lord Jesus in you. As you bring them the word, they need to hear Christ. As you live your life, they need to see Jesus speaking to them through your example. And that's what the Bible tells us. If you flip back again to Hebrews 13, but this time we'll go to verse 7, Hebrews 13, 7, and that's on page 794. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. You see what the apostle's doing here? He's not saying, remember your leaders, listen to all the rules they made up that you have to follow to be a good Christian, to be a good church member. He's not saying that. He's saying, look at the way they live. Look where their faith brings them and what direction it leads them and imitate these men. Let them be examples to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So the elders don't come visit us 
to make sure that everybody's following the rules of the church. The elders don't come visit us to, to beat us up, to tell us off, to make sure that we're falling into line with what the church thinks about how you should live and, and how you should think and how you should work and how you should dress. That's not the gospel. That's legalism. And legalism hates the gospel. Legalism kills joy in Christ. That's not what the elders come for. The elders come to visit to say, you know what? I know the way of the cross. And I know that that's the only way for you and for me to walk in the way of Christ. Even though it hurts now. Even though it requires great sacrifice now, but it's the only way because it's the only way which leads to life everlasting and eternal glory. And I can tell you, my brother, my sister, I know how many times I chose the easy way out, followed my own desires, not God's word, and it led me to a dead end. And it hurt. It hurt me, it hurt others. I know by experience how sin destroys and brings death, but I also can testify that Jesus is a loving and forgiving God and that following the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how hard it is, no matter how much it hurts, it's the only way. It is the way. It is the truth. It is the life. It is the way to glory, and it's the only way to live. And I want to encourage you in that way. So Peter says, you know what? Don't go around telling people what to do. Be an example. Be an example to the flock. The Lord wants the men in this church who are called to the offices to be so, by the power of the Spirit, to be so godly, to be men of integrity, to be men of faithfulness, to be men full of love, to be men full of humility and sacrificial service so that when the, the young men in the congregation look around, they say, I want to be like that elder. I want to be like my elder. I want to be a man of integrity. I want to be a faithful husband like my elder. I want to be a kind and loving father, a patient father like my elder. I want to be a leader with, with a humble heart of service. I want to follow his example. You know, brother and sister, I'm kind of repeating this a lot because it's important. So often, also in the history of our own churches, we've spent so much time being very particular about the right things to, to believe, and that's important. It's very important. But if that's all we're doing, that's not enough. To get all the doctrines and all the ceremonies and all the worship principles all down pat and all right, that's super important but it's not enough by itself. We need to live in the power of these glorious truths. And we need to demand a lot more of ourselves, brothers, a lot more than just coming into someone's home and making sure they're checking off all the right boxes in the confessions and in the church order. We need to be men that are examples to the flock. That's very frightening. Who can possibly be sufficient for these things? Is, is there any man here that th thinks, you know, I'm, I'm such a good Christian, I'm so godly, loving, kind, humble, 
a real servant heart, a man of integrity. I check all of those boxes. Anyone here that can say that they do this perfectly? I don't think so. Not one of us. Starting with the man of the pulpit, we, we can't do it. We're not sufficient. This is a high calling. And that's why we need verse 4. We need the chief shepherd. Because when the spirit of our chief shepherd reigns in the church and fills the church and makes the members alive and then he equips the pastors with his power, only then can we carry out our offices. Only then can we walk along the path of our pilgrimage through suffering to glory. We need Christ and we need the spirit of Christ. That's our only hope. And so we've seen the, the context of our, our text. We've seen the conduct of the elders in their office. And now, finally, we'll look at the, the culmination as we come to verse 4. Where is it all going to end? Because there is an end. It's very important. We've got to remember that. There's an end. Everything we do as church every Sunday and through the activities through the week and the seasons of home visits and catechism, there's this whole routine that kind of builds up a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly routine and we kind of get used to it as if that's life, but that's not life. This is temporary. We're going somewhere and that somewhere has an end. There is a destination. The church will not go on like this forever. God, therefore, does not give us elders to keep things the way they are. To make sure nothing changes. Sometimes we want elders like that. Some people do. Just make sure that everything's the same. If there's a change, oh, it's so frightening. That's not what elders are for. In fact, God gives us elders to make sure that lots of things change. God wants to see progress in the gospel. He wants to see us moving closer and closer to our final destination of eternal glory and perfect holiness in Christ. He wants to see us grow in sanctification, in love for the Lord Jesus, in commitment to the gospel. So God gives us elders to lead us forward towards our destination. We are going somewhere, and every day that somewhere, that destination is getting closer and closer because the day is coming when the chief shepherd will appear. We'll round a bend on that path, and maybe we'll, we will have just come out of a real deep valley of pain and suffering and affliction and persecution, and we'll come up and we'll round the corner, and we will see him. Jesus is coming to meet us. And then the end will be the end of the pain, the end of the pilgrimage, the end of the suffering. And that day is coming soon, brothers and sisters. The Bible says it. Behold, I am coming soon. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ is imminent. It's something we should expect at every moment, even today. May it be on our hearts that maybe, just maybe, the Lord Jesus will come back this afternoon or this evening or tomorrow morning. We ought to live with a lively expectation of that great day. And the elders aren't here to keep us in line with the expectations of the rest of the congregation. The elders are here to lead us forward. 
through the suffering to the glory, through every pain, through every affliction to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is not just a nice story, a nice myth that we tell ourselves to, to help us get through the darkness of the, light, of the night. But it is an objective fact rooted in historical events, made certain by the death and the resurrection, the ascension and the seatedness of the right hand of God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And every day we get closer to eternal life and to the new Jerusalem and to the renewed heavens and earth and to the perfect and eternal glory and joy in Christ's presence. And so Jesus charges the elders, you get things moving. Don't stop. Move on. Lead my flock to that destination and I will meet you at the end. And when he meets us, what's going to happen? Did you see the end of verse 4 there? When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Well, unfading here means something which doesn't lose its, its shine. The, the Greek word for unfading is connected to the, the name amara. Unfading, undying, unending. It doesn't break down. There's no expiration date. It shines for all eternity. That's what the crown does. And as we look at the last words of our text, brothers and sisters, I want to say to those men who have served in office before, this applies to you as well, and to the work that you've done as you've served the church in one or more times in office. There is a crown that the Lord Jesus will give to you on that great day. Now, what is the crown? Will it be that in heaven we can tell who, who served as elders because They'll be wearing these shiny little circles of gold in their head. Possible. But I don't think that's the understanding that Scripture gives us. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 for a moment with me. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 2, 19. And children, see if you can figure out what the crown is. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19, 20. It's on page 775. And Paul speaking to the church here, he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? There's a talk of a crown here at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Now, what is it? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. What is the crown? that awaits faithful office bearers, faithful pastors of the church. Brothers and sisters, you are the crown. This shepherd, a shepherd given the task to lead the flock high into the mountain valleys to, to, to seek pasture. If he arrives at the right place at the right time of year, but along the journey he's lost all the sheep, then he's useless. Because he didn't do his job. He got to the right place, he got to the right time, but he didn't bring the right people along or didn't bring the right sheep along. 
And so the crown of glory, which awaits every faithful pastor, every faithful elder, every faithful deacon in their specific pastoral duties, is that in eternity he will see those sheep that he loved, that he prayed for, that he visited, that he went after, that he exhorted with the gospel, that he pleaded with, that he pleaded for, that he prayed with, that he prayed for, that he had so many pastoral meetings about, so many prayers, so many visits, so many nights of leaving wife and children at home to go after another sheep and call that sheep back to the way of life, the way of the Lord. After so many tears, after so many hours, after so much energy, after so much love invested, after so many times of saying, wow, is this getting me anywhere? Is this doing anything? And then on that great day, to see that sheep in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, pure and perfect and arrived and home and gloriously happy for all eternity. That's the crown. There's no greater joy than that for a pastor. And so brothers, when it gets too much, and when we're weighed down by another duty of our office, another meeting, another visit, another sheep that's straying from the way, another sheep fallen in a pit, wandering off to be attacked by wolves, needing rescue. Brothers, remember the crown of glory. See the believers you serve. Together with who knows how many descendants born from them and brought up in the fear of the Lord. To see them in glory, safe in the presence of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that crown is certainly for them, our office bearers. But we all get to share in that joy. If the elders will be happy to see us in glory, we will also glorify God for these shepherds that he gave us, these shepherds who loved us, these shepherds who led us through the pain, through the suffering, to the end of our pilgrimage. Is it tough to keep going, brother or sister, as you walk the path, as you walk the pilgrimage? Is the suffering too much? Jesus loves you, brother and sister. Jesus understands your pain. Jesus knows what you're going through. Jesus has been there. Jesus has walked this way of the cross ahead of you. And he knows how badly it can hurt but he also knows where it ends up and he is waiting for you and he gives you shepherds to lead you along that way through suffering to glory and we are getting there brothers and sisters we're coming to a joy that is so profound so immense that it cannot be compared to the suffering that we're going through and so I want to end this sermon with the words of Romans 8 verse 18 if you can turn there I'd like to read them together, brothers and sisters. Romans 8, verse 18. And if you have the, the ESV, I'd like you to read that out loud with me right now. Romans chapter 8, verse 
18, page 740. Let's read it together out loud. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 